You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey there, music lovers. This is the Modern Musicology Podcast. And just like last week, this week we have Alan, Stephanie, and Rob. How's it going, everybody? Doing hey. good. <laughs> hey. Hey. hey what's so, up? So, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are revisiting the year 1993. Oh, mm-hmm. this is a crazy year. There is a lot of stuff out this year. It yep. is a diverse year. Before we jump into that, though, let me get to a little bit of listener feedback. I heard from uh, Jessica, one of our regular listeners down in Florida, who said that the Novelty Records episode was a fun one. And one of our another one of our regulars, Eric Sensava, had this to say about the Novelty Songs episode. Novelty Songs was a fun show. It brought me back to the late 70s when they put out compilation albums called Funny Bone Favorites and Wacky Winners, which my friend's parents bought on 8-track, speaking of novelty. And we would listen to those records over and over. They included songs like Monster Mash, Witch Doctor, Red Baron, and other things. A couple of others that came to mind for me, though, were Basketball Jones by Cheech and Chong from the early 70s. And that's one that I don't recognize. Yeah. Curly Shuffle by Jump and Saddle from the mid 80s, yeah. a Three yeah. Stooges themed novelty, very big band like. I completely never even thought about that one. I purposely did. <laughs> and then the Super Bowl Shuffle by the Chicago Bears. That's oh right. An actual NFL football team. I even remember the video. Thanks again for a great episode. Well, thanks for writing in, Eric. And thanks for uh, filling in some of our blanks. The The Super Bowl Shuffle, I think I remember coming across in a list of things. And it just didn't occur to me to put it on my, on my list for the show. I don't know. But that, yeah, I remember that from whatever year that came out. Super Bowl Shuffle. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) God, craziness. All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have feedback for us, just email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com. And you can leave a comment anywhere you find our episode on our Facebook page or Insta or wherever. All right. You guys. It is the year 1993. Let's set the tone for the year. Here's some of the the things that happened that year in the music world. Michael Jackson plays the Super Bowl halftime show, kicking off the trend of having major artists playing the halftime. Whitney Houston sets a new record by having I Will Always Love You occupy the top spot on the singles charts for 14 straight weeks. Bobby Brown is arrested in Augusta, Georgia, for simulating a sex act on stage. Naughty. (laughs) Barry White appears in The Simpsons. Prince changes his name to an unpronounceable symbol. Mia Zapata of the Gits is found dead after being beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled near her home in Seattle. Michael Jackson, once again in the news because he's accused of sexual molestation of a 13-year-old Jordan Chandler and his family leveled the charges against him and an investigation was launched. Madonna starts her girly show tour and Nirvana plays their now legendary MTV unplugged show. What a great show. Really? It super was. And some artists, pretty important artists had debuts in 1993. Some of these we'll be talking about when we get into our discussion, but some of the debuts of that year were Sheryl Crow. Radiohead, The Cranberries, Tool, Suede, Jamiroquai, and Shaggy. Yeah. Shaggy. I know, right? That's a pretty good list of new bands. Yeah. So where were you in 1993? 
What was 1993 like for Rob and for Stephanie? I was working at um, Island and, well, sorry, not Island. Let me try that again. I was working at Charisma Records, which was pretty much folding at that point into into, um, Virgin Records. And I was chatting with Rob still because <laughs> we were, <laughs> um, and I actually have a couple albums on my list that, that, uh, you know, meant so much to me from that year that I'm going to be talking about like jellyfish and verve albums yeah. that I actually worked. So, well, I Rob, you'd you, have you, you can, we can join that. You can join my discussion, Rob, on those because <laughs> I know I just took maybe one or two of yours, right? <laughs> Where were you, Rob? So I too was in New York. In 19, the first part, well, except for the last two months of 1993, mm. I was in New York. I started off the year really well, and then I ended up having a, like a really, really, really nasty breakup yeah. and um, probably was the closest I've ever had to spiraling into alcoholism. Came home and got my shit together and finished college, and uh, I started really enjoying going to see live music again and going clubbing. Um, cause you could do it more low key in the Midwest without a whole thing. And there's a lot of music that I sort of missed that year mm. that I didn't get to till later. But I also have very distinct memories about certain songs from that year as well. I was also that year, the music director of WBCR in Brooklyn and the station was off the air when we got there and we basically... I'm not even sure how we, we got carts and uh, turntables. And I know there was some chicanery involved, but we got all the equipment we needed. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's 1993 is also the first year I DJed in public because I mm-hmm. DJed at the Limelight in 93 a couple times. And then once at uh, Steph's beloved Danceteria. Yeah. So that's my 1993. I hope it's uh, a lot perkier and happier for the captain up there. Captain. Oh my God. That's Alan's new nickname. Cappy. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. I don't know where the hell I was in 1993. That tells you a lot about my year. Scared. Um, I know though that I wasn't really in a place where I was paying a lot of attention to what was going on in the music world at that time. Mm. I was thinking that I was, I had to have been in, because, you know, I started college 10 years after I graduated high school. So I was a late bloomer. So I did my first three years at a community college. So I was working a job full time and I was going to college and doing homework at when, you know, afterward. And I was involved in a couple of other things. So I know I wasn't paying that much attention. It would get even worse a couple of years later when I started university. But, uh, so you know, most of the stuff that I have on my list is like not really, you know, newish or current ish stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. all these okay. old fuckers who were like putting out stuff still. So, yeah, I'm glad That's that. Perfectly I, fine. Yeah. Well, I think that some you you two have more 90s, like actual 90s stuff on your list. So I think we'll balance each other out. Yeah. Be good. So tell us, let's talk about some of your musical highlights. Who wants to kick it off? All right. Well, l- let me just say that of the favorite bands I promoted during that time, during my time really at Charisma and Virgin, I have to say Verve was my all-time favorite. And actually the Verve because Verve Records sued them, but I always in my head still to this day just say Verve. Um, (laughs) They were my favorite band of all time, you know, to to work, to promote. And Jellyfish was like a strong second or third, you know, Blur was in there as well. So Mm -hmm. Verve that year had a record called A Storm in Heaven with amazing songs like Blue, Make It Till Monday, Butterfly. I mean, it was just that they were so fantastic. And seeing them live, too, was really like a religious experience. I mean, maybe possibly enhanced by my my healthy dose of ecstasy every time I would go see them. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Still, um, they they were just so great, and and all my friends were really into them too. We I just remember it was sort of just like this big community event whenever they played. Um, so, th- and I'm watching them kind of grow from from the EP to this album, then the Northern Soul to you know, of course, Urban Hymns, which had Bittersweet Symphony on it, was was really great. So, 
you know, also just, it's hard for me to separate my memory of the albums and them because it was just all intertwined, you know? Is that because of the ecstasy? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I kid, I kid. But I mean, it's funny because I think the band themselves, like we, we, we hung out, um, you know, at shows and stuff and they would come up to the office when they were in, in the States. They were very fond of my co- my counterpart, like my college radio counterpart, Chuck. And they all, Richard also was very disarmed by him and very charmed by him because Richard, I feel like, was very suspicious of, you know, the the record company people. And, you know, rightly so. I, I know how that goes. But he he really loved Chuck. And I was going out with Chuck at the same time. And he, he kind of loved our relationship, too. And it was really cute. He was just, they were just really friendly with us. And it, anyway, just very good memories. Amazing song. Uh, songs on that album and so then also the same year jellyfish came out with spilt milk and i know rob would sort of beg to differ with me on this issue that this <laughs> isn't the best album of theirs of the two but i think it's just i don't know to me this is such a one of the greatest concept albums ever it's so it's so rich in like texture and style it's, you know kind of beach boyish and that whole harmony thing and i I think, and I think I've said this before on the show, I'm not sure we picked the right single to go with. It It did do well. Ghost at number one did do well. But I mean, I would have picked like Bye 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 or Glutton of Sympathy. Hmm. And I don't know. Anyway, it, to me, that, that, was a, that was a smash album and it still is to this day. So those are my two favorites from, from working at, at charisma slash virgin steph i'm just gonna say i hope you never run out of cool stories to tell about that (laughs) i love listening to your story so much thanks (laughs) (laughs) all right rob what's up on your list well 1993 was the year that uh kurt loader yelled at me which was pretty awesome (laughs) so i was at mtv and uh i was walking in the building he was walking out he was get out of my way (laughs) so that was uh fun i knew i i knew i was in new york when kurt loader officially yelled at me <laughs> and then you know steph talks about working at charisma i used to come in her office and you know she used to put up with me because i used to just sit there and i'm just like i'm tired i prop my feet up <laughs> you know it was, it's like she's got like these these you know um these two kids that look like they fell out of the bowery coming into her office you know like hi we're here to see steph i liked getting visits <laughs> and you know after a while it was like i she's down there you know and you worked another record that it's not on my list this year, but another record you worked that year was that was great was the Christy uh, McCall record, the was Titanic that from Days. Ninety three though. Yeah, Titanic Days oh, is ninety three. Titanic Days, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good um, and I remember because we saw the Verve together. You probably don't remember that. Oh, maybe at the church. Yeah. Yeah, we saw them at the church, and that's when I kind of knew that the whole whole quote unquote Brit pop thing was was coming. So that's some of my favorite memories. I think Alan touched upon this earlier when I think of 1993. I just think it's the year that Nirvana continued to decimate everything in front of them because they had the MTV unplugged. They had In Utero. That was when you had- In Utero uh, was great. Yeah. You had uh, Walmart having a hissy fit about In Utero. Was that because of the cover? That's because they had the song Rape Me on it. and they oh, made right, it, right. They changed it to Waif Me. Yes. I just remembered that like that was the year that Nirvana just like took it to the next level. Right. It was just insane. So those are my, my big memories of that. And I just remember the year being really diverse. And I do remember for about four months, you could not go anywhere without hearing the Cypress Hill record. Yeah. Um, which, which wasn't really my thing. Um, that's when I also discovered Tribe Called Quest, just in case we don't get into hip hop that year. Those are the two things. And then LL Cool J put out a cool record that year I liked too. So those are kind of some of my fleeting memories of 93. Well, what about an album that's on your list, Rob? Oh, oh, yeah, that would help. <laughs> Duh. So in 19, <laughs> yeah, uh, 1993, which is a year of all this different styles of music. You had hip hop. You had a ton of electronica stuff coming out. It was a very, very loud year for music, right? It's just really loud across the board. Any genre that you listen to was loud. You know, Britpop was coming. You know, grunge was coming. The industrial thing was coming. Everything was all over the place, right? So I loved it when I got to be quiet with that Mazzy Star record. Uh, so tonight that I might see their second album. Yeah. Um, Fade Into You sort of became an, un- an unexpected hit. I remember when it 
hit the CMJ charts, it did really well, but it did really, really, really well. And I don't think people really expected it because we had, you know, the Julie Cruz record and some other things before that that were kind of quiet too. But this record really was solid. Uh, it's got a song there called Wasted that's really good too. So I'm going to start my list off with an actual legitimate uh, 1990s artist. It's like the only one that's on my list. And that is, it's from the later part of the year, but it's uh, Sarah McLachlan. Oh, yeah. Fumbling Toward Ecstasy. Holy shit. I love that album so much. And I was with a friend of mine. Um, it was this friend from college that she was like, friends with other friends of mine and i don't think she liked me very much unless she needed a ride somewhere then she was like hey we're all friends now <laughs> anyway she loved this album and um i don't remember if she played this for me or if it just happened to come on the radio when she was in the car with me but i heard possession and holy cow that that song just mm. floored me the first time i heard it it just blew me away and i was like i have got to have more of this so I went out and bought the album and it turned out to be just as amazing as that first song is. And everything on, I mean, every single song on the album is a highlight. So there are songs like Mary, Wait, Hold On, Elsewhere, Circle, Fear, the title track. I mean, every song mm -hmm. on it is just a kind of a mellow banger. It's yeah, so good. As Anthony would and say. I just feel like there's like no other Sarah album has really stacked up to that one. Mm -hmm. And I've loved the other albums that she's put out the two before this one, this was her third album and the, the couple right after this, but I don't think any of them were as good as diverse and as solid as this one was. It's just amazing. She's awesome. I love her. Yeah. I've watched a couple of concert films and oh my God, I would not survive. She just focuses on all the piano slow songs and I would just fall asleep. <laughs> I know it's terrible, but I do love her. <laughs> All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, kind of talk about another two that sort of go together because I saw them play together. Um, Cheryl Crow, like you mentioned her debut album, Tuesday night music club. Mm. And, um, also crowded house had their, uh, fourth studio album out that year called together alone, which is, yeah. oh, it's one of my favorite records. But, um, so first of all, Cheryl, Wow, what a debut. I mean, I don't remember I don't know if you remember like the first time you you heard and saw Leaving Las Vegas, but that to me was such a stark, interesting and standout song, like and video. So it, to me, she just kind of really came onto the scene with a bang. Um mm -hmm. and that album has so many good songs on it too. I mean, Run Baby Run, Strong Enough, All I Want to Do. That just that's a great debut album. Now she opened up. She so okay. Now going to Crowded House with Together Alone, another amazing album. Locked Out was the single from that, and that was also on the Reality Bites soundtrack. So that had a really big kind of like boost from that, and it was a pretty big hit for them. So I saw them twice. Cheryl opened for Crowded House, which is such a crazy double bill, and um, I saw them at Roseland in the city in New York City, and then Tower Theater in Philly one night after another. And my, I remember I said, I was going out with Chuck from, from my record company. We were going out. He brought me to those shows and he actually got me backstage, got us backstage. And I have a picture and I will post it on our page <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook of me sitting on Neil Finn's lap with Cheryl Crow in the middle and what? then Nick Seymour and Mick Hart from Crowded House all sitting together. And oh that was, God. that's one of my most treasured possessions. It's I'm looking at the photo right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. To see Cheryl open up for Crowded House, it was amazing. She was, um, I had never really, I had never seen her play. Obviously I'd never seen her play before, but I had never sort of seen anyone play like her and warm up a crowd the way she did. It, it was so powerful. She really did a great job getting everyone pumped up for crowded house because she herself hmm. was so amazing and the crowd really got into it and then they came out and it was just the shows were really amazing cheryl crow used to be playing a couple bands in st louis that i saw growing up and um she was in a band with my friend kip louie oh wow right? oh wow it was a band band called bell star huh. and they were kind of working on a record and it was kind of happening and he just i don't know the story of it and it was amicable he they just didn't click right mm -hmm. musically 
So he kicked her, fired her up from his band. Mm -hmm. And that's the last band she was in before she was a solo artist. So his claim to fame is like, yeah, I'm responsible for uh, for Cheryl Crow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's funny. Real quick, I just want to talk about uh, Together Alone. Um, Mm. And, you know, I've mentioned on the show before how much I love Neil Finn and think he's just an incredible songwriter and singer. Um, But that's just such a good album. I mean, Private Universe. Oh, my God. Distant Distant Sun. Sun. (gasps) Distant Sun, yeah. Did we just say that at the same time? Yes, we yes. did. And Catherine oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. I love Pineapple Head, which is a weird song, but I just Me love it. Me too. Yay. <laughs> I just think that's such a great album. Also, like the way he ends that vocal on that song, aha, like that's such a mm-hmm. great, that, oh, that's mm-hmm. such yeah. a perfect. Yeah, yeah that so good. Black and White Boy, In My Command, there's no bad song on that album. Right. Right. One, one of the things that really bugs me is that you know, after that first burst when they broke, Crowded mm. House never really got a fair shake in the American press over here, at least, right. at least in my opinion. No, right? I agree. Um, the songs are more like the thing about this record, the songs are more nuanced. It's one of those records where you don't hear an obvious quote unquote hit. Mm. Right. Well, locked out, I think is. But maybe. You know. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, or it's or it's one of those albums like, OK, it's got the hit and the rest is an album. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those things. But it doesn't have like, oh, this is a big hit, which, which I don't care about when I listen, but I just love the fact that it's got a very distinct tone and mood to it. They knew what they were doing. They wanted their record to sound this way and they did it. Well, this was the first album also produced by um, youth, you know, not yeah. Mitchell Froom. Mm-hmm. And also they added Mark Hart. So it was a little bit of a different sound too for this yeah. album. This is kind of the end of their original run too, because the next album they yeah. do is like 15 years later. Uh, no. Time on Earth in 2007. Oh, you mean together, like with the just... Well, the... as far as like, you know, album, 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 and then they have like this huge break before another oh, yeah, album comes out. Because Woodface, right, was before this. Sorry. It I'm was, just, yes, it yeah. was. Mm-hmm. I'll kind of keep it in the same ballpark where you kids are, and um, I'm going to add Rid of Me by PJ Harvey. Yeah. Uh, produced by Steve Albini. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of significant stuff that year. Yeah, he did. And he, you can't he, get um, more 90s than him. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, he. Uh, I saw him in a record store in Chicago in like '97 or '98, and uh, I was terrified to death to meet him because it's <laughs> not always supposed to be a pleasant experience. And it was just kind of there. Anyway, you've got a really great cover of Dylan, uh, Highway 51 Revisited on there. You've got uh, Dry. You've got 50 Foot Queenie, which was 50 Foot 50 Foot Queenie was kind of the beginning of alternative commercial radio. That, that's like when I first started hearing this kind of music on a regular radio station. That was one of the first songs I heard, but I think pretty much even though it's her second album, by the time you got to rid of me by PJ Harvey, you kind of know, knew that this was an artist that you had to watch and keep an eye on. And that had a really interesting way of writing music, writing songs, and then also was not going to compromise. And I just think it's, I think it holds up really well too. I think it mm-hmm. holds up better. I think it's better with age than it was when it came out. Okay, so there's this guy from the late 80s that puts out his third album in May of 1993. And I just got to say, man, Terrence Trent Darby never equaled his debut album, but his third album, Symphony or Damn, is pretty close. It's um, much more rock-oriented. It's it's more like rock-oriented funk. It's got much heavier guitar than his first two albums did. And there's some really great stuff on there. Uh, Do you love me like you say you do? Baby, let me share my love. And then there's this duet called Delicate, which is, uh, he does uh, this song with Desiree. And it's the only song on the album that really kind of sounds similar in that style to his first album. And it sounds kind of similar to uh, the biggest hit on that first album called uh, Sign Your Name. And it's so good. And I've kind of, you know, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it at the time. It didn't grab me as much as um, the first album did. The first album I immediately loved and just gravitated to. And, you know, the second and third one I liked and I played them a few times and whatever. But I came back to them later on, like years later, and really came to love the third album a lot more than I did originally. It still mm-hmm. doesn't stack up to that debut album. That debut album is incredible. 
but it's so good. And I, and I have a, a new love for it that I didn't have at the time it came out. Very cool. Yeah. We all know it would not be a podcast if I didn't talk about Daniel Lenoir. Daniel Lenoir. <laughs> and this is the year that he released my favorite album by him called For the Beauty of Winona. And I don't know. It's it is really it is the quintessential Daniel Lenoir album for me. I think I think he everything he does I really do love. And he's got so many different styles and you know, things he puts out and he's, you know, he's done other bands too. You know, this album is so great because like every single song is unique and different from the next, but they really just form a totally cohesive album. And I know, I, I know I mentioned this before, but seeing him at town hall for this album, just like three guys on stage, they could basically go from like a whisper of sound to this, you know, most powerful you could feel it in your gut kind of huge sound and everyone, I mean, really you could feel the energy in the room. Everybody was just like on the edge of their seats because it was so good. Like you just couldn't wait for the next note, you know? Um, and this is so, this album is so such a favorite of mine that I'm actually going to attempt to cover one of his songs on my next um, EP if I can get my shit together, but I want to do the messenger. I've heard some covers of that song, but I'm not sure. I mean, I I don't know. I, I kind of think I want to just do it sort of similar to what he does, but just a little bit different, a little varied. But anyway. So what, what you're saying is you've heard other people do that song, but none of them quite did it right. So I don't think so. You've you got to show them how it's done. <laughs> you know what? I don't know. Cover songs are weird, right? Like you, some of them I yeah. really like and some I just don't. And I don't like when people really, really totally vary shit up. Unless mm. they do it in a really great way. Like it has to be really great for you to just take a song and really do it differently. I think, yeah. I don't know. It's That's a hard thing my, to do. Yeah. It's just my thing. That's just my personal opinion. Anyway, if you don't have for the beauty of Winona, you better go get it. <laughs> and that's a threat. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie's going to come get you. <laughs> well, I guess we should talk about it. We, Steph has kind of talked about some stuff she's talked about before. So I guess I will. Yes. This last week, as of recording this, we've seen the reissue of The Breeders' Last Splash. And uh, it's 30 years old. And, you know, oh, yeah. Pixies, the demise of the Pixies has happened. And um, Kim Deal was anxious to set off into the world and make her own record with her sister and some friends. And they ended up making Last Splash. You got Cannonball, mm. and then you've got uh, Do You Love Me Now, which they also released as a version with her and Jay Mascus and Divine Hammer. Driving on Nine, which is kind of this weird road wang song on there. Cannonball, the lead singer, single, was one of those things that was really all over 120 minutes at the time. And sort of, as I mentioned before, kind of the start of commercial alternative radio. You could not go anywhere in the summer of 1993 without hearing the Breeders. You could not. It was everywhere. <laughs> you know, it was like literally everywhere. They played, I think they played, um, I saw them twice a year. So I'm once on tour and they also played, I think Lollapalooza that year. Yeah. As well. I think they did. Yeah. I think yeah. I saw them at the Ritz. I think they were so good. Yeah. They, and live, they were just fantastic. But that record, it's got some really wonderful chord progressions in it. The thing is, is like, it just sounds like a woman singing the Pixies. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. but it works i mean kim deal is a much better musician than i think people think she is and her brother and her sister kelly's great too and, and that whole band yeah yeah josephine yeah you I know we remember. should say they are a great band because they they're still touring and my friends just went to see them play and they're they were amazing apparently so yeah, they, yeah. they've been touring for a couple years great. but this this tour specifically has been amazing yep they just reissued the album with a version of Divine Hammer sung by Jane Mas Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr. called Divine Mascus <laughs> and a couple other B-sides that are on there as well. Um, this record would be better if it was produced by Bob Perry, but it's uh, still pretty good. <laughs> well, speaking of B-sides, that is exactly my next thing on my list. Oh. And I know we don't normally talk about greatest hits packages on these you know, retrospective things, but Prince put out a three disc set called hits 
and B sides. And the first two set, the first two discs were all his hits at that point. But the thing that I bought it for, the thing I was excited about was disc three, which was all the B sides from his singles. Now I had been collecting like a hardcore Prince collector for years. And I had all these songs on 45s on 12 inches on whatever. There were songs that came from movie soundtracks. There was just all sorts of things. And I was so excited that these things were going to be put out on CD. So we get a CD quality recording of all these amazing songs. Because there's a lot of times, I mean, I love Prince albums, but there's a lot of times that I think that the best stuff from each album, he saved for the flip side of a single. Mm -hmm. And there's some incredible stuff that came from, especially some of his more recent albums at that point. I mean, first of all, you've got the classic Prince B-side, and that is Erotic City. Holy shit. So having that on a CD for the first time was incredible. But then there's Escape. Um, there's a song called Shockadelica, which Jesse Johnson of the time did a, his third solo album. He titled the album Shockadelica. And there wasn't a song on the album called Shockadelica. So Prince said, boy, if you have a title as good as Shockadelica, you better have a song that backs it up. So he wrote a song called Shockadelica. And it's got the acoustic version of For the Tears in Your Eyes, which was from the USA for Africa album. Oh, my God. So oh. amazing. So I was so excited about that box set just because of the, the third disc with all the B-sides. Now, my favorite Prince B-side ever recorded and released is called Love or Money. It's a dollar sign or heart. And it was not on that box set and i was so so disappointed <laughs> what was it on what was it from then it was the flip side of kiss oh, oh oh okay yeah and it's so good it is so amazing so i was disappointed that that was left off but i was so th thrilled to get all the other was, there were 20 songs on that third disc. wow yeah it was so great so it was like basically getting a new prince album if you hadn't or like two <laughs> if you hadn't collected any of those singles and stuff all those songs would have been new for you yeah that's so neat all right, I'm going to jump in with Amy Mann, uh, who had yeah. her, you know, debut solo album. I mean, she obviously had records with Till Tuesday, but this is her first solo. It was called Whatever. And I love this album, man. I mean, there's so many good songs. It's funny. I We listen to Amy Mann all the time, Bob and I, in the car or whatever, just, and it's kind of on shuffle. But you, you know, you'll hear, you know, like 50 Years After the Fair, which is from this record, and then you'll hear like a newer song and then maybe you'll hear Jacob Mar Marley's chain from this album and a newer song. They, it's like, she, she, she's timeless. I feel like there's nothing, there's nothing dated on the record. There's no, to me, the production or nothing like that is dated. Yeah. Um, John Bryan is amazing. I mean, this is one of the first, mm -hmm. you know, of the few albums that he would go on to produce and play on. And there's so many, there's so many, um, you know, he, he adds so much to her band in these first few albums, I yeah. think. But there was really great players on this. I mean, Jim Keltner plays on it. Um, Roger McGuinn is on this. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Michael Hausman, of course, from Till Tuesday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, her songwriting is just, it's like super sharp-witted lyrics. And, yeah. you know, it just, I think this set the stage for the next, you know, 30 years of mm -hmm. her amazing mastery of songwriting. I think she is like Neil Finn level songwriter. Yes. She, yeah, I just both, think she's so amazing. Yeah. Just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's got the other end of the telescope on it too. No, that was a Till nope. Tuesday song. That was on the second Till Tuesday. That was the second one. So yeah. this tour is the tour that Dave Gregory toured on, was in her touring band. Okay. Because when I got my CD signed, I also got a couple of my XTC records signed by him. Oh, so wow. your point about her having a great touring band yeah. is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, it's, maybe it's Stupid Thing that's on this. Which one am I thinking of? Uh, stupid Thing is on this, yeah. That's what, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, you really see an artist that is stepping away from being in a band. Yes. And I think Amago Records, which is gone now, yeah. Uh, which put that out at the time was known for just letting artists make records and taking as much time as they wanted to make it. Right. Mm. And I think the fact that she got, you know, basically take as much time as you need, get it to us when you're done. 
and uh, the fact that she kind of got to whittle away at it and whittle mm-hmm. away at it. This is the first tour I saw her on by herself, and she was fantastic. And uh, she came in and did a session at our station. Oh, wow. Oh, neat. Acoustic, acoustic. Mm-hmm. She did the other end of the telescope, stupid thing, and I think one other song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was terrific. And she just could not have been lovelier. So I've, I've been so a big great. fan for forever. Aww. Yeah, That's so cool. Saint Etienne. Uh, mm-hmm. But an album called So Tough, which is named partially after a Beach Boys album. So, yeah, it's an interesting record because it's got You're in a Bad Way on it and Mario's Cafe, which are really, really good pop songs. It's, a, it's their probably biggest hit record that they did. It's got Avenue on it. It's got uh, a really fantastic song called Conchito Martinez that Alan will be interesting, interested to hear because it samples Spirit of the Radio by Rush. Excuse me? How did I not know about this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, and uh, they actually, in a time before sampling, they gave Getty Lee a songwriting credit. Yeah. Wow. I saw them uh, countless times from 92 to 94, but this record was just like them being a really great pop band, sort of like a rainy band from England doing like sunny California songs, and it's really shimmering pop. It, again, is a departure from a lot of the other stuff that year, because um, you kind of are starting to see... The Sundays and the laws and mm-hmm. some of this kind of yes. jangly British, but this is a, it kind of combines that summer of love sound with um, more traditional pop elements coming through that year. And so tough is just a fantastic record. So that's mine. That's awesome. All right. I've got a Bowie double header. <laughs> Bowie put out two records this year and both of them are great. So I f- kind of feel like this is the point where Bowie is coming out of and really stepping away from that overly produced pop 80s hit maker phase and that was the whole reason behind his side band tin machine which did two albums and then split and his first album back from that is black tie white noise and it was produced by nile rogers who had produced let's dance 10 years earlier And it's a weird album. I never really got into it because I felt like the musically, it always felt sort of sterile to me, like very mechanical, very machine-like. And I've sort of come to terms with it since then. I really love it now. It was inspired by a couple of different, very different things. Uh, His marriage to Iman and the LA riots. So Mm -hmm. the themes on the album are all these things like love and racial harmony and getting along with each other but right in the middle of it there's this song which was the first single called jump they say which is about his half-brother terry who died in an insane asylum in 85. so it's a really strange album and it's got um some very sort of like pop funk kind of instrumentals it's interesting album uh you've been around is a great song he has a couple of covers my two favorite songs on the album are a cover of Cream's I Feel Free and the Walker Brothers' Night Flights, which is fantastic. There is a song that didn't make it onto the album, which Nile Rodgers argued with him about. It's called Lucy Can't Dance. And Nile was like, this is the best song we recorded. If you put this on the album, we can release it as a single and it'll be a huge hit. And Bobby's like, nope, it's going to be on the flip side of a single. It's not going to be on the album. And side note, that song was the inspiration for the children's picture book that I wrote a couple of years ago. Oh, wow, Alan, that's so cool. Yeah. And then later in the year, actually, when he was promoting Black Tie White Noise, he was doing some press tours and he was talking to, oh, now I can't remember the, the, the name of the guy, um, but he was the author of a book called The Buddha of Suburbia, and they were adapting it. The BBC was adapting it to a miniseries for television. And the guy asked Bowie if he could use some of Bowie's older material in the soundtrack. And Bowie's like, I'll do you one better. I will compose new stuff for your soundtrack. Oh my and God. Yeah. Cause he loved the book. So the Buddha of suburbia album comes around and Bowie was so inspired by the work that he did for the miniseries that he just wrote a whole new album of stuff. And unfortunately it got labeled as a soundtrack instead of a new Bowie album. And the only song that was on the album that was in the show was the title song, Buddha of Suburbia, and which is a phenomenal song. It is one of my favorite Bowie 90s singles. It's just incredible. 
but the album itself is just this weird mishmash of rock, pop, ambient, jazz. Mm. It's just all over the place. He's got these really ethereal ambient instrumentals and these really progressive jazz jams. It's just crazy. And it's very experimental, just like his 70s stuff was. I feel like I've said this before. I feel like Bowie's 90s period was as progressive, as experimental, as exciting, as creative as his 70s output. And I just absolutely love it. And Buddha of Suburbia is really that turn into going wherever he wanted to go. It didn't matter if there were hits. It didn't matter if it was commercially successful. He just did what he wanted to do. And it's such a brilliant, brilliant album. I don't really know anything about it. Now I have to go search that one out and, and check it out. That makes it's, me want It's a weird one. I didn't somehow, you know, because I was so invested in college and all that kind of stuff. I didn't even know about it. I completely yeah. missed it because it didn't get promoted in England. And at least it had a single that was tied to a TV show here. Since everyone thought it was a soundtrack for a show that was never shown in America, right. it just got zero promotion. And Bowie didn't promote it at all because wow. he was already moving on to his next project. So I just, I was just blitzed on it and I discovered it like a few years later. And I'm like, there's a Bowie album I missed. <laughs> and it's amazing. Very you gotta cool. Get it. I'm going to stick to the singer songwritery kind of vein of things and talk about Matthew Sweet's fourth album actually but a lot of people don't think it's of it as his fourth album because a lot of people think girlfriend was his first album but it was not right so um this is the follow-up to girlfriend and you know it is it's hard to follow girlfriend up i mean that was to me that's like a perfect album um but i think he did a great job with altered beast it was such a first of all he had a like total cavalcade of amazing people playing on this album speaking of great people on your record. I mean, Mick Fleetwood, Jody Stevens, Pete Thomas, Richard Lloyd, Robert Quine, Ivan Julian, Nikki Hopkins. I mean, just to name some. So I, I think there's like, there were such high expectations, I think, for this album. But if you just heard this album without knowing about his album, Girlfriend, you know, if you just came into this as like, okay, this is this guy with this new album. It, it's great. There are so many great songs on this album. I mean, The Ugly Truth, Time Machine. I'm mean, sorry, Time Capsule, Time Machine, Time Capsule, Dinosaur Act, the opening song, Do It Again, Into Deep, Devil with the Green Eyes. There's so many beautiful songs on here. The songwriting is fantastic. And I still love listening to this album. I don't try to like compare it to anything. It's just a great album. I think it stands out on its own. So Slow Dive, second album, uh, Suvlaki came out that year. They are one of those bands that was on Creation Records. And 1993, Creation Records was a huge deal. All those bands that were on Creation are getting signed to deals in America. Yeah. And Slow Diver, one of them, they put out Suvlaki. Um, the American version has a fantastic cover of Some Velvet Morning on it. Allison did really well at radio that year. And uh, the whole record's just great. It's got Neil Halstead doing some great stuff with Rachel Goswell. It really sort of establishes them as a tandem of um, writing partners and music collaborators. And it's a really solid sort of dreamy, shoegazy album and again the beginning of uh, that sort of movement cool well i'm gonna go to one of my favorite bands ever and that's heart because i'm always going to bring up heart if i get the opportunity to and yeah. they put out their 11th album and it's called desire walks on this is the last studio album that they released on Capitol records and of course Capitol had scooped them up when they were kind of at a low point and said we're going to reinvent you we're going to get you outside songwriters you're going to be big hit machine makers and heart hated it but they made a lot of money off of it of course and desire walks on is sort of like the fourth or fifth album in that string of things that Capitol was doing but it's very very different from the former Capitol albums it's uh, very much driven by Ann and Nancy. They only have a couple of songs by outside writers. And that was just to, you know, as a capitulation to the record label. But at this point, they're like doing the big kiss off of like, we're done with, we're done with that whole scene, Capital. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. But we're, we're moving on. Our desire is walking on. And I remember when I went to buy the album, um, I went to a record store that a friend of mine worked at who was also a big heart fan. And I'm like, Hey, have you listened to it yet? He's like, yeah. And I was like, so what do you think of it? And he kind of like side-eyed me and he said, it's like they learned how to play guitar again. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And it's so true. When you listen to this album, it is like a much heavier album than anything they did in the 80s and the their 1990 album. It's very much a return to their hard rock kind of sound. It's got big guitar sound. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just got great songs like uh, Back on Black, Back to Avalon, Rage, which is just a slamming song. In Walks the Night, and it's got this great cover of a Bob Dylan tune, Ring Them Bells, which Ann and Nancy sing with Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. It is oh, so good. Cool. Yeah, great album. So it was it was nice to hear them being a rock band again. Yeah. I'm going to go for Duran Duran self-titled album, but it's also known as The Wedding Album. Yes. 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 Seventh album of theirs, but this was a massive comeback for them with Ordinary World and also the song Come Undone, which is yeah. another beautiful song. But uh, Ordinary World, I mean, what can you say? It's so beautiful. It's just stunningly beautiful song. Warren Cucurillo's guitar, the solo is, you know, that, that song, that solo is just instantly recognizable. Yes. It's like a classic solo. Um, Simon wrote that song about the death of a friend and it, I feel like, you know, the whole emotion comes through. It yeah. really translated to a huge audience and it, it just slammed them back into the charts, you know, oh, absolutely. deservedly. So it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was Warren's first album with them and mm-hmm. he did a, a, you know, he stayed with them for quite a while after that. And I just thought he was an amazing addition to that band. Oh yeah. He, I mean, that guy played with everyone from like Zappa to, yeah. you know, missing person. <laughs> so yeah, he's, just such a great player. Yeah. He added a lot. So I'll uh, jump in. And, you know, we've talked about on this podcast a little bit what happens when bands get really, really massive and they sort of change how they sound or do some things and it kind of freaks people out. So Depeche Mode did that in 1993. They did their eighth album, Songs of Faith and Devotion. Mm-hmm. They're coming off a of Violator, which is a pretty heavy synth-driven album. And they release I Feel You, which is just like sort of grimy, grungy pop record. People don't really know how to take it. And then the rest of the songs on there, like Condemnation or In My Room, are kind of slower and have like some of that like quieter industrial beats on it. So it's a transition record that sort of is the sound of the 90s, that moving away from like the electronic of the late 80s into grunge. It's sort of like right in between. I love that album. That Condemnation song is so great. Yeah. And it's, you know, the band, the band's a mess at this point. I mean, Dave Gahan's, I think, Messing with heroin, Martin Gore's got stuff going on with his marriage. Um, when I saw them at the limelight one night when this record dropped, they were just they were a mess, right? So the fact that they even finished this, um, and this is the tour that almost broke them up. This record was hugely commercial, which they needed after Violator. They built this, you know, sort of trilogy of records with music for the masses and then Violator and then this, where they're big. And this sort of like encapsulate them them as an arena band. It sealed the deal of them being an arena band. All right. I've got a new Kate Bush album. It came out in November that year. It's called the red shoes. It's so good. It's very different from all the things that she did up to that point, but she kind of changed focus. Every album was very different from the other ones. And this is just a a great collection of songs, rubber band girl, the title track, Eric Clapton played on a song called, and so is love. It's just, it's really different, but it's great. Um, And I also want to throw in there, Pat Benatar, had a new album called Gravity's Rainbow. This is kind of a comeback after they did their blues album a couple of years earlier that was they enjoyed doing, but it didn't it wasn't a commercial success. And I don't think that they ever really had any top 40, top 10 hits after this point. But um, the first single from Gravity's Rainbow was called Everybody Lay Down and the rock radio just grabbed hold of it because it was the first time you had a a good rock Pat Benatar song to play. And it was very different. It was so, it was almost grungy in the fact that it had this really distorted guitar and this really heavy thing. And the drum set sounded kind of trashy and there was an edge in Pat's voice, you know, and she didn't do a lot of the vocal layering with harmonies and everything. It was just this raw song. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And I loved it so much. And the album is pretty good. There's a couple of songs on there. Um, Somebody's Baby is really good. And the difference about this album was that it most of their albums are a mix of stuff that they wrote and stuff that came from outside writers. And this is 100% them. Almost every song is written in some combination between Pat, Neil, 
and uh, their drummer, Myron Grumbacher. Myron, yeah. So, yeah, Myron's such a great guy. He's mm-hmm. such a good songwriter, too, because he wrote a lot of stuff in the later Pat Benatar albums. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I, I like the album mainly because of Everybody Lay Down was such a slamming song, and I was so glad to hear them back to being a rock, just like Heart, back to being a rock yeah. band again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> back to basics. Back to basics. Uh, for my last thing that I'll kind of delve into any detail about, uh, it's uh, Hot House Flowers, Mm. Which, uh, and the album's called Songs from the Rain, which is my favorite one of their albums, actually. I mean, I don't feel like, well, maybe they did. I, maybe in the 90s, they did sort of get that popularity that they, that they should have, I feel like. But they were obviously there from Ireland. They're huge there, but um, it didn't really get too far in the US charts. I think this reached number seven on the UK albums chart, but it didn't, you know, do much here. But there are so many beautiful songs on this one. Um, An Emotional Time, Be Good, Thing of Beauty. Oh, what a wonderful, powerful song. Isn't it amazing? They're, ah, God. Anyway, (laughs) I love it. I think they're really, they're like really honest and earnest. And they sort of remind me of the passion of early like U2 and Waterboys albums. So it's just a great collection of songs. But um, speaking of Waterboys, they they did have an album out this year called Dream Harder, and the reason I, and I didn't love the whole album, but the song "Preparing to Fly" I have talked about on this podcast before, uh, because it is an amazing song with sick guitar solos, and just I feel like everyone should just listen to that song "Preparing to Fly." You'll be so happy you did. There's two other bands that are worth mentioning to me for this year that I'll just not even go into detail about, but Suede's mm-hmm. debut, yeah fantastic also aerosmith put out get a grip which was a huge album for them so um the yeah. very different bands but my encapsulation of 93 <laughs> all right rob bring it home 1993 brought us the onset of uh, something fantastically amazing but still overlooked in, in american music and that is the riot girl movement because we got the first bikini kill record uh pussy whipped um yes. In 1993, Starbellied Boy, Tell Me So. You know, you also, I think, get a Bratmobile album the same year and uh, Velocity Girl. It just kickstarts a whole movement that's incendiary and awesome that's going to last, you know, even through today. So um, that first Bikini Kill record, man, that thing is short, but it's it's a beast. So I want to mention that. Uh, You also get uh, debut, the first record from Bjork uh, before she got too weird. Uh, it's her first album after the sugar. Oh, I love Bjork, but uh, it's the first album she did on her own. So it's got like human behavior on it and Venus is a boy and uh, come to me and some stuff like that on it. It was played a lot in the clubs. She was everywhere. Once this record came out, she was kind of like marketed as like this cute little artist that was awesome and had a great voice. And now she just does whatever the hell she wants. And um, yeah, so there's that record. And then uh, I would be completely remiss if I did not mention that this is the 30th anniversary of Very uh, by the Pet Shop Boys at a time in England when everyone's making rock albums or they're doing sort of like the beginning of, you know, shoegaze and and Britpop. They made a flat out pop sort of disco record, right? They've got Can You Forgive Her on it, which is full of a ton of hooks. They do a cover of the Village People's Go West, which when you first hear it, you're like, what is this? But man, it's fantastic. Um, it's got Dreaming of the Queen on it, which is this um, really startling uh, commentary on Thatcher's, you know, post-Thatcher Britain. It's their fifth album. It's really good. They also released it with a companion record called Very Relentless, uh, which was like a bunch of remixes that didn't make the album. And it's just this like really weird sort of fun little pop record they did. It came in a Lego, like a kind of a Lego case. Mm-hmm. So it's always weird to file in your record collection. Right. And um <laughs> The other thing that's interesting, too, about this is that their videos for the album, they were sort of the first band to full-on embrace CGI. And they look dated now, but the videos are um, are interesting. And they wore these huge pointy hats, like dunce hats, in in, in every in all the promotion for it. And um, it's just very bright and very loud. And it was a record that straight and gay people could love. But it is very much a statement of, like, this idea of, like, a gay utopia kind of a, kind of a thing with Go West and some of the other things. So it's a record that does a lot of things on a lot of different levels. And, um, yeah, that's it for me. All right. Well, I've got a couple of 
hard rock albums that I want to just quickly mention, both of which I did not like when they first came out, and that is Counterparts by Rush and Edge of Success by Triumph. Mm-hmm. And there's various reasons. And it's funny, both are from Canada. Both are, are three-piece bands, and they both put out records that I didn't really like. <laughs> and I come to, I came to them you know, later on to you know be okay with them, but I didn't like them at the beginning. But there's a couple of things that I want to mention. One is on behalf of our absent friend, Anthony Williams. If he were on the show this week, he would point out that Iron Maiden put out three live albums in 1993. And the first two were called A Real Live One and A Real Dead One. And it was, they were both recorded on the their previous tour. And one of them focused on all the songs from their first, like half of their career up to uh, Power Slave. And then the other one was all the songs from that tour on the albums after Power Slave. So it was kind of an interesting thing. And then the third one was Live at Donington. They were one of the, I think this was their second time appearing at Castle Donington. And um, it was from that same tour. And so it's another album that includes a lot of the same songs that were on those first two records. Cool. And then the last one, and this is just bringing it on home. (laughs) And this is the, and I have to mention this because I love my sweetheart and my sweetie is a big Celine Dion fan. So I got (laughs) to say that the color of my love was her third English language album. I think it's like her eighth album or something, but this is her third English language one. And uh, the first single on that album was the power of love, which was a cover of that Jennifer rush song from 84, 85, whenever that was. And um, I was looking at the track list and the only other song, there was like eight singles from this album. And the only other one that I recognized was When I Fall in Love. And so it's, you know, there you go. Celine Celine. Dion. Celine. Celine. We're wrapping up 93 with Celine. (laughs) That's right. And a promise to my baby. But I would mention the album on our show. That's nice. Well, there's so many. I mean, there were a million albums out this year too. We could talk forever about this year, but it's like hard to not go on and on. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. And we're inviting you to join us as we delve into the dawn of the DC. We'll be reviewing new titles such as The Unstoppable Doom Patrol, Shazam, Green Lantern, Titans, Justice Society of America, and more. We'll also be reviewing DC Television's final season of The Flash, Titans, and Doom Patrol. Join us every week on the Earth Station DCU Podcast, part of the ESO Network. Yep, so that's 1993. We did it. We got to the end. Oh, my gosh. So I think that that does it for us this week. We are going to be back next week. We are going to be talking. We got a sort of a lighthearted topic for next week. We're going to be talking about opening bands, the good ones, the crappy ones, the ones that we've played in. It's going to be fun. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things. So until next week. We are Modern Musicology, and Modern Musicology is made up of Stephanie Seymour. Where can we find you, Stephanie, when you're not on our little podcast? (laughs) You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. And I also have a website, therearebirds.com. You can find me on Bandcamp under my name. And then uh, like all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that. Groovy Rob. Uh, you can find me on Linktree. That's got all my socials on it. Uh, that's the easiest way to do it, but it's Facebook and, and Twitter and then a couple other things. Blue Sky, Margarine, Llama, Llama Vision, whatever the hell they've got now <laughs> for social media, whatever it is, whatever it is now that they've Llama got out. Um, but yeah, mo- those are the main two. I'm also on Spotify. Uh, Mondays, uh, are there, you know, whether they're manic or fun days, you can tune into uh, Louder Than War Radio and hear my show, Antics. It's uh, 6 to 8 English time, 1 to 3 Eastern, 12 to 2 Central. It's called Antics. It's two hours of just whatever fell out of my brain. Um, and you can listen to that. All the shows are archived on the Louder Than War Mixcloud page. So you've got, as of right now, 29 of them to enjoy, to terrify the neighbors with. And uh, you can find that there on, on Louder Than War Radio. Also on the um, needcoffee.com podcast, Weekend Justice. 
All right. So if you were interested, you could go to my website, which is Cosmic Creative, K-O-Z-M-I-C Creative.com and find my books and my podcasts. They're all there and you can link to everything of interest. All right. So as I said, next week, we're talking about opening bands. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Until then, have a great week. Keep rocking on and we will see you around the bend. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.